Scott. Good morning, Emmanuel. The scripture reading this morning comes from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore the zeal of the lord of hosts will do this this is the word of the lord if you were to ask me what the darkest day of the year is meaning fewest hours of sunlight latest sunrise earliest sunset by memory and by experience, my guess would be late January, early February. It just is a period of time that I feel like it's cold, it's dark, spring feels so far off, I feel like I have gotten worn down. But those of you in the know realize it's December 21st, we're actually quite close to it. So the winter solstice, the shortest day, December 21st. Um, it never feels to me like the darkest day, maybe for a number of reasons, but one, growing up in the city, that the beginning of December is when the city lights up. And so I grew up in one of those neighborhoods that was big into Christmas lights, and my, one of my closest friends, Vinny, lived on 84th and 12th, perhaps the most famous block in New York for Christmas light. But even here, you walk down 125th and the, it's lit up, or if you walk through Columbia at 116th, they have lights that start in December. And there's something about that that makes it feel like it's not as dark. There's something about lighting things up that makes it feel like uh, that things are happening, that we're more connected. And so even if December 21st is the darkest day of the year, uh, the light and among other things, uh, the light and other things makes it feel so that, that that's not so much the case for some of us, at least I'm sharing my own experience. 
Now, we're in what's called the Advent season, so for the upcoming Sundays, we're looking at passages from the book of Isaiah. The book of Isaiah anticipates the coming of someone whose arrival is like light and darkness, and so Christmas has that imagery. The birth of Jesus as, is as if something bright came into a dark place. And what it means is that something has changed radically. And when I used to hear about this radical change with the arrival of Jesus, I think I got confused that the claim was that there was a thorough change. And of course, the, cl- the claim is, uh, is not that the world was thoroughly changed, meaning there's still darkness, there's still struggle. Jesus didn't fix everything. The hope is for a future return when all things will be renewed and made new. But in the meantime, we still live with troubles and complications, but the claim is that once light has come in, how we experience life in the darkness is different. It won't feel as hopeless and as troubling if Jesus has come and as if he is who the Bible uh, declares him to be. And so that's worth thinking about in this season. So we're going to be looking at these passages from Isaiah uh, perhaps some of the famous ones that are related to Christmas. Today we're looking at Isaiah 9. And in looking at this passage, I want to highlight uh, three things that we can expect. Uh, walking in darkness, seeing great light, and increasing peace. So I want to begin talking about walking in darkness. That is not the tone of the passage, but it's the context. The tone of the passage is great joy and great hope and great celebration. But to understand the greatness of it, we need to assume the context, which is Isaiah is telling them in advance what's going to happen. First of all, they're not listening to Isaiah. So Isaiah says, the more you walk away from God, the worse you're going to find things get. And history played out that that happened. But now in Isaiah 9 is saying, but even when you walk away from God, God will do something in the future that will be so great that, um, that it will cause us to marvel. And so he's announcing both of those things in advance. But before we get to the great light, um, let's give a little bit of thought to the darkness because that's even in this passage. So uh, if you look at verse 2, it says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has, sh- has shown. It's the story of God's people who stray from him and in straying find that it's overwhelmingly miserable. And yet it's a story of God's grace who still comes to meet them. But it's that misery. The imagery of darkness is usually clear enough to most of us. Some people fear the dark, and even if you don't fear the dark itself, you could see why being in darkness would um, be concerning. For me, being a city person, the woods are terrifying, even when it's not dark. I find myself wondering what's going to happen. But, but uh, I've found myself on a couple of occasions not timing sunset properly. And yes, I have that little light on the iPhone, which seems more powerful in my apartment than it does in the vast wilderness. Uh, but there have been times that I've been out there, and one of the things about the darkness is the confusion, the, the inability to see affects what you can understand, and therefore we misunderstand. And so you hear a noise, and maybe that noise was a chipmunk, but you fear it's a bear. And so you're terrified, even though you shouldn't be. But on the other hand, the noise may be a bear, and you think it's a chipmunk, and you feel completely calm and safe, but you should be terrified. That's the nature of life in this idea of darkness, and that is how we experience so much of life, so much that we don't understand, we misjudge. So, for example, people tend to walk around with a guilty conscience. We all have regrets, and we're meant to deal with it, 
Christianity gives us tools and resources, but we avoid it, we're slow to deal with it, we're stubborn, we're foolish. And so you carry that with you, and what happens is then an event happens that in your mind you're convinced is connected. So 10 years ago you did something that you constantly feel bad about, and then you get into an accident, and boom, you put them together. One was the cause of the other. So that's karma, it's fate, but we theologize within Christianity. Well, we believe in a God who holds accountable, and so if I did this wrong thing, this must be the accountability. Maybe, sometimes, there's, there's behind the scenes some connection, but the thing is we don't know. Maybe there is no correlation between the thing you're guilty of, uh, feeling guilty about, and the thing that happened. But on the other hand, we are always doing things that have consequences, and we refuse to see them. And so some of our misery is because of things that we could change, but we don't want to acknowledge it, so we blame others, and so there's that confusion. You know, if I get into parkour and get inspired to, to see a building and to climb it and to jump from one side to the other and then to, to come down and land on a banister and do a bit of a flip uh, and then try it in my middle age, I would be the kind of person where the video of me landing on the banister would be for laughing at, not for being inspired by. But what happens to so many of us in that moment where what you envision happening not being reality is, what do you do? All of a sudden you start to think that there's an incompetence to the architect who designed that building. You know, usually that brick surrounding of the window has about an inch and a half that's very grabbable and there must have been some design flaw that when I went to grab that I fell and what's wrong with this person who built this building as though to invite us to do things that would harm ourselves? It's the kind of weird dialogue we have rather than thinking watching 10 YouTube videos does not make a person great at parkour and whatever looked easy to that expert that I'm now finding is not easy, why not just admit uh, that was a dumb thing to do? But we don't do that. And so we take blame and responsibility for things that we shouldn't and we blame others for things that we should. That's part of the confusing nature of life. It's part of the life of darkness. And so in Isaiah, in chapter 8, the previous chapter, that gives us a sense of, of what is this darkness that's being described or that there's hope for in chapter 9, it has theological roots of a, of a walking away from God, but God who's the giver of life, God who's the creator of light, God who's the maker of all things good. We underestimate how wandering from him is to wander from light into darkness, to wander from life into dying, to wander from goodness into what is harmful. And so Isaiah is warning his people, and here's the description in chapter 8, verses 21 to 22. Speaking of God's people, they will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. They're wandering from God, so they're going to pass through greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. So that's one sign is things are not going to go well when you stray from God and then you're going to be angry with God. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. So we're walking away from God. We're now angry with God that things aren't going well. And we're hopeful that maybe the people around us and the culture and the things of the earth will provide for us. And these people will find out, actually, when God is not your king, the kings of these nations are not going to prove to be more just or more generous or more faithful. But you'll find that it will be terrible, and that's their story. They wound up being nearly destroyed by the Assyrians, the people in Jerusalem, but then actually destroyed by the Babylonians. Uh, deep darkness. And so 
Um, you think in the book of, uh, of uh, Job, for example. Job is a story of, a, of someone whose life utterly falls apart and he doesn't understand what's going on. And there's so much he misunderstands that causes trouble and there's so much he gets wrong, but one thing he gets right at the beginning, his wife says to him, why don't you curse God and die? And he says, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to turn and rail against God. But he, he does turn to God. I'm innocent. Why did this happen? He does argue theologically. He's honest and he's wrong about a lot of things. But the one thing he gets right is, I'm not going to make that mistake to rail against God. And that actually, <clears throat> as part of the wisdom tradition, shows that even through his confusion, he wisely comes to the end because he was different from what so many of us do, that when things go wrong, we turn from the one who can help us. And so the world is filled with trouble, and God says, well, I will guide you, and I will protect you, and I will watch over you, and I will heal you. No promise for an easy, perfect life. But there is a genuine hope, but, but the, the warning is clear. But if we, if we won't listen, if we do what we desire, and if we try to sneak and hide certain things and think that the earth will satisfy us, it's deep darkness, it's distress, and it becomes so confusing that you then can't find the one who will help you. This week, a minor news item you may not have read about, a bomb went off in Munich. A uh, construction crew building a bridge detonated a bomb. And it wasn't part of their, their plan. It was accidental. What happened? There was an undetonated bomb from World War II. Could you imagine that sitting there for 70 or 80 years? And the bomb got set off while they're building, you know, seriously injuring a handful of the crew. And you think, what are the chances of that, that a bomb from 70 or 80 years ago is sitting there and then suddenly goes off? What a fluke, what a weird thing, right? Apparently, the odds are greater than you would assume. Every year in Germany, 2,000 tons of undetonated bombs are found. Since 2010, in England, 60 bombs a year, undetonated World War II bombs are there. So they know this, this is surprising to me, but they know it, so before you build, before you dig, in France, in England, in Germany, places like that, they are aware there might be some undetonated bomb under the surface. And so aware of that, knowing that, we now need to behave differently, more cautiously. And the Bible says in every one of us is something waiting to blow up. In our world, there are these things that have not yet been set off. And if you walk around thinking you're in the light and you're safe, you're, in, you're at some point something's going to happen that will utterly surprise you. But Jesus says, now, I'm not telling you that life is safe and wonderful, but I'm saying if you come with me, I will shine light so you will get a greater insight to, to these things in your heart and in your experience so that you can deal with them and, and seek healing and that every interaction is not one that's going to set you off. And you can go into the world with greater wisdom so that you're not fooled by people who are smiling as they shake your hand but intend on harming you. And so this, this idea of the darkness is not meant to, to make us more afraid or more cynical. It's meant to make us wise given the struggles that we all experience that get intensified at some time. So, so we live in a world where there is deep darkness. That is discouraging. And you can see that theologically we would say, well, the root of this is people turning from God. But how does it take shape? It takes shape in verse 4 through the rod of the oppressor, verse 5 through the boot of the tramping warrior. Um, what is it about people that we are hostile 
We are selfish, we are greedy, which means that when we organize and take the strength and the gifts that we have, we don't use them for the flourishing of all, but we use them to our own advantage at the expense of others. We get so angry, we go to war, so bloodshed is normal in every generation. Um, The Bible is saying it shouldn't be normal. This is darkness, this is not good. And so it's in that distress that God then will have to do something. So here's the second thing, seeing great white. This is what the story that Isaiah anticipates that reaches a certain measure of fulfillment in the arrival of Jesus is God's addressing this deep and troubling problem. And so we find that in verse 3, speaking of God, you have increased its joy. What a different narrative. The very people who turned away from you, walking into darkness, you will come and bring joy to these people who railed against you. Verse 7, the Lord of hosts, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Once we are lost in the darkness, whatever plan we come up with to get out is just to have us going in circles. The hope is that the very one we turned against will come after us, and he will shine light, and he will do something that we cannot do for ourselves. That is the hope, and that's what's being anticipated by Isaiah. One day God will do it. Now, how's God going to do it? Here are two things. One is through a gift. We are given a person. That's verse 6, for to us a child is born. So the hope of somebody who's different from anyone who has ever lived, to us a son is given, the language of given. We don't earn it, we don't deserve it. Uh, And we raise up among ourselves leaders who just keep us in the same cycle. But God will send somebody in. He will give us somebody who will make a difference. And, And think of these titles. You will be called Wonderful Counselor, Do you need somebody to instruct you? Somebody whose teaching and being is wonderful so that you gain understanding and wisdom. Would that be helpful to make sense of your life in this world? That's what we need. God says, I will send one who is a wonderful counselor, somebody to teach you, to lead you, to advise you. He will be called the mighty God. Do we need God to be powerful? Well, what happens when we look at the powers as they're exercised by those around us? individually and in our institutions? Is there the hope that there's one thoroughly good who is mighty? Well, well, God is, and he is good, and so what we need is this mighty God. An everlasting father, not a father uh, who's with us when he's not working, or with the family when he hasn't met somebody he's more interested in, um, or kind to us when his mood is good, Um, but a father that doesn't leave us, but a father who is everlasting, fatherly, good, providing, protective. Is that something we need? It is. A prince of peace. Do we need a future leader that has the promise of establishing peace rather than just creating the the cycles of the next promise that then gets failed? We need a prince of peace. Um, The things that are offered here Imagine there's a person like this, and so you read through Isaiah and you think, well, who could it have been? Was it Hezekiah? Who, who fits this description of the later kings? It's kind of like with a puzzle and some of the advanced puzzles that you find a piece that looks like it fits, but then you have to sort of push it in, and I'm the kind of person that's like, no, I think it really fits, but, but I just assume that there's a machinery error that they didn't cut it right. You, you press it in, and then it, it goes in, but other parts of the puzzle bulge. Who is it that fits? Well, there's, there's a number of people that came and brought peace. There's a number of people who were mighty. But you read this story and you think, 
you know, how can anybody but God fit this? You know, who else would get the title Mighty God, Everlasting Father? But this is not about what God will do in some far-off way. It's about a person who God will raise up. So, so who fits that? And in the whole of the Bible, in the whole of the world, there's only one person that meets the criteria that fits squarely. It's the one who was born, the one who came into the world as light into darkness, the one who was sent from the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the one who would establish a kingdom of peace, the one who would be our wonderful counselor and would send that counselor, the Spirit, so that he would be with us. It's Jesus, the gift. That's what we're remembering, that in the darkness of our lives, God has begun to fulfill this. And so it's not thorough yet, but, but things are different. We have light. So the first thing is that something is given to us. But here's a second thing, is that what this person will come and do that's unique is that he will establish himself and his reign and his rule in what is unfortunately unique. Verse 7, he will be on the throne of David and, and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. How do human beings establish power? And how do we maintain it? Let's not be too cynical, but often, whatever we're saying, there's some hidden self-serving agenda. So we establish it not fully righteously, not fully justly, but in the way that appears to be. But sometimes we're actually well-intentioned. We do establish things. We really get it right, but do we uphold it? Are we able to maintain it? We're told that there's one person who can have that authority, that trust, the one that was announced hundreds of years in advance, who comes to establish a kingdom and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. And what makes this king different? He will come into the darkness, but he will not wear the warrior's boot, but he may be trampled by it and experience bloodshed. He will not bear the rod of the oppressor, but he will go before his people and be struck with the rod. Think of Jesus's fake trial where the Roman Empire beats him and causes him to bleed and crucifies him. Jesus willingly did this because the ways of God are utterly different. He would establish with his own righteousness, overturning and making things just, that through the injustice he receives on our behalf, he turns the world upside down so that things could be made right. And we're told that God has sent one strong light into the world, a righteous man who will establish justice on our behalf so that having been justified by his grace as a gift, we can live righteous lives because he is now our king, our ruler, because we now live under his light. It creates a new possibility that says when you're wandering in darkness, you can't figure it out and get your life together. Just call out and he will find you. It's a very different paradigm. He comes and he establishes in our lives and in our world the way of peace, everlasting. And then he will uphold it. And it's that vision, the sign of the cross, that says this was a sign that was meant to be not of the glory of the empire, but the threatening of the empire. The crown was the glory. Look at our wealth, our power, and our prestige. But look at the cross. This is what happens if you don't obey the crown. Jesus says the cross will now be the sign of my followers because they'll remember that I'm a different kind of king. And so there's a tradition um, in, in nations that have, uh, where Christianity has been established that the, the rulers, the monarchs, have crowns 
where the cross is on top of it. It's meant to be a sign that says that the Bible promises a king of kings. All the rulers of the earth are meant to imitate his leadership, to establish and uphold the justice and righteousness, but also to be accountable that if they choose not to be just and upright, they will answer to the one who is above us. And so that crown, uh, having the cross above it, is meant to be a sign of humility, a sign that makes things right. And you could think of periods in church history where it seems like leaders of Christian nations took the cross aside to uphold the crown and the, the years of damage in explaining that the church still needs to, to give, to wonder why would Christian people do that? And we would say because we were not upholding justice and righteousness. We were not leading, following the great king. You know, in talking about this crown with a cross on top of it, um, it's interesting if you think of the various imagery for our neighbors, Columbia University, um, could be their mascot or their seal, but, but their logo is typically the crown. Um, but it's kind of interesting that the different schools of the university have slight design modifications. And in some cases, they're so subtle that you, without an untrained design eye, may not see that there's little differences. But actually, um, there are some significant differences between some of the schools where, where uh, the emblem looks different. Um, in most cases, um, again, it's minor, but about a little bit more than 15 years ago, and I don't know the backstory, I don't know why, but the proposal was, well, let's make an official logo that doesn't have the cross on top of it. And so, so the, the crown was there with a diamond at the top, but not with the cross. And I wasn't there, maybe it was a design idea, we're gonna clean it up, make it look simpler. I could imagine good reasons that a school would say, look, we were founded many years ago as a Christian school, Nobody here wants that. We want to be a school for all students, and so we don't want a sign of one religion. All of that would be reasonable if they had that conversation. I don't know what the conversation was. But as Christians, we should see differently. That the cross on top of the crown should say there, there's a greater authority, and, and it may seem, and it would be understandable why some people would say taking the cross off makes us more hospitable. <laughs> more able to meet people. But Christians would say, well, what happens when you take that sign off? What are you doing to portray uh, your institution? So now you don't have that threatening cross. Is a crown with a diamond on the top a less threatening sign? I think as Christians, we would say, if the greatest sign is a king, a man, who had the right to lead, and we need to obey, and there's no one he's accountable to, I would say this doesn't communicate a greater hope for the future, but it communicates something potentially terrifying. That's a Christian way of seeing things. Now, again, I don't know about the institution of the university, but the law school, the journalism school, SIPA, their logo, there's no cross on it. Again, they're not, they shouldn't try to have a Christian identity. My point is in the symbolism. What seems to us to say this is progress there is one person who established his reign with righteousness and justice and upholds it that way. If we're not imitating him, and if we're accountable to no one, the human story will play itself out. If a symbol of power is not under a symbol of sacrifice and weakness, we should tremble in fear. Christmas tells us that there's the possibility of an alternate way in the world. There is a people who are called to see that there is a king of kings 
And you don't need to be a king to be under his authority and to steward whatever power and resources you have. So here's the last thing that I want to talk about. I'm just going to, before I move to the last point, read John 8, 12. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so at Psalm 36, we say, by his light, we see light. So here's the last possibility, increasing peace. So here's the last thing I want to leave you to, leave you with. The possibility is that what Jesus established and upholds through a group of people who believe with humility, who understand his grace, who seek to imitate him and to steward what we have under his authority and by his likeness, there's the possibility that the peace of God can increase in this world. Verse 7, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. The government will be on his shoulders. At first, they're going to try to tear him down and destroy him, but he's going to be the one that actually rises so that a true way of ruling and organizing that establishes peace is established. It will increase. There will be no end. And there's a time and space dimension to it. It's eternal. There's no end in time. What Jesus has done will be established forever, established and upheld in righteousness and justice. But there's a space dynamic to it because it will increase here, kind of like the parable that Jesus tells of the mustard seed, where he says, you know, it's the small, it looks like any other seed. And the farmer puts it in with the various, you know, plants and vegetables, but all of a sudden you find it's a tree. And eventually the birds of this area come and they find shelter. Jesus comes as one person rejected and he suffers death and it seems like it's a complete failure, but then he has these 12 apostles. And then he has this small gathering and then he has the day of Pentecost, an increase. And you find that the goal is that through Jesus, the true seed, he seems small and insignificant, but when he gives his life, what comes out of that is true life. And there's an increase of a group of people, a community that's meant to be the kinds of people that as we establish ourselves across the earth, uh, others will come and rest in our branches. We're meant to go out into the world to advance the peace established and upheld by Jesus. So if you think in our neighborhood, in the days that the King's College became Columbia University and said, why don't we go to Morningside Heights? There was this idea of a city on a hill. And so what do you do? You establish a cathedral like St. John the Divine. We want to gather people for worship. And a hospital like St. Luke's. And a system of education, not just to train your mind, but to form people like Columbia University. And the vision was, what would happen if Christians got together and said, we're here to to build up and to teach people. We're here to heal people. We're here to welcome all to worship. Um, wouldn't Morningside Heights be a, a light in this city if we can do that, if it's established and upheld in justice and righteousness? You know, friends, we believe that our small, um, humble community is here because if Christ's light shines brightly, if we gather to worship and then go out into the world, we're crazy enough to think that the peace of God will advance through our believing and following. And so, you may not have a divine right to any kind of monarchy, but if you have your hope in Jesus Christ, you are royalty, a holy priesthood, a royal nation. That's what we have been looking at in First Peter. There's a crown of dignity as you go into the world, but remember, atop of the crown is a cross. So. This week, as you go out into the world, imagine that there's a cross over your head. And as you relate to people, 
as you do your work and as you make your choices of how you spend your money and how you interact with people, what would you do differently if you realized there was a king who established all things in justice and righteousness and in imitation to him, everything I do will be to establish and uphold in imitation of him. And what if people saw the crown? What if, what if your behavior, you couldn't simply have an outburst and then hide away into the anonymity of the city without somebody knowing that you're an ambassador of Christ? This is not meant to make us terrified. It's meant to make us live in the light. What if you were to go out and to say, I'm gonna go as an ambassador, whether or not they see that cross, it's what I hope that in meeting me, they will see something of the righteousness and the justice of Jesus Christ in who I am and how I behave. None of us are perfect, but we're called to practice that. God gives it to you, and God will uphold you as you go and seek to give it to others. And so I wanna encourage you today, don't walk in darkness, walk in the light of Christ, see that great light, and increase the peace that he gives you. Share it, and then come back next week after you've given it all away, and we'll give you more. Let's pray. Our Father, we long for the thorough establishing and outworking of this promised reality. Lord, we're grateful that Jesus shows that it really came, that in his coming we have a wonderful counselor. We have an everlasting Father. And so, Lord, lead us by your Spirit. Forgive us for our stubbornness, our folly. Forgive us for loving the darkness without knowing it. Um, help us to see light the, the path on our feet that we would not stumble, but that we would go after our great king and uh, with honor and dignity take the peace that he gives to us uh, and share it generously and radically as we go into the world. Lord, do that this week. Protect us, keep us from temptation. Um, forgive us for our grumbling and our ingratitude, but Lord, help us to see Jesus that by his light uh, we would have light for the week. Do that gracious work by the power of your spirit in us, we pray. Amen.